You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Thanks, Charlie. Uh, thanks, family, for the love uh, and shoring me up in my insecurity. I don't do this very often, so I will not have the same kind of silky smoothness that Big Charles has or the creative like spontaneity that Chris can uh, generate while doing this, so I don't have the same kind of rhythms. So it is, a, it is an exercise in faith for me today that I might be able to speak clearly uh, to you guys so that you might uh, be encouraged by and equipped by the truth of God. Um, this year we've been going through uh, the biblical story. We're trying to make it through from January to December, the whole entire story, which means you only get to hit high points. And today uh, we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 6, which for those of you who attended Sunday school are probably very familiar with, for it is the classic story of Daniel and the lion's den. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there, but as you do, I'm going to give us just a little bit of context like others have before, of like the story that's preceded this story so that we might better understand what's happening in Daniel chapter 6. So God creates all things good, right, and beautiful. Uh, He's in perfect fellowship with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are in perfect fellowship with one another and with all of creation, uh, and they choose to rebel, and God's good world is subject to a curse. Here you can think of death, disease, hostility toward one another, uh, disregard for God himself uh, in place of idols of any kind, um, all these are a part of part and parcel of the curse. And God is not uh, just sitting still in response to that curse, to the suffering of his world, of his people. Instead, he goes on a mission to restore this blessing with which the creation originally was made for and, and enjoyed. Uh, and so as, as a result, he, ju- he does this unique thing of choosing one man, Abraham, who at the time his name is Abram. But, so Abraham is chosen uh, to become a family, and for that family to become a nation. And this nation is given a vocation to be a light to the nations. They are to be witnesses to the world of God's good way. So there was a good way that the world was ordered in the beginning. That order is disrupted by mankind's rebellion. God chooses Abraham, and Abraham's going to be a big family. Big family going to be a big nation. Nation is going to be this light to the world of how God orders things in a way that is good for his people. And for his world. And so they're given this task, and a part of this, uh, a part of the promises that are made to Abraham, one is a gift of land. They're given this gift of land in which uh, they are to be the showcase kind of people to the world. Like, this is the way to live. This is a different way of being human. This is a different way of ordering your life. And the, the, the retention of this land, the retention of this gift, is based on their faithfulness or loyal to God as king. So remember, God is king, society, family, individual. That's sort of a basic structure for the good ordering of the world, which is also seen in the Ten Commandments that Charles was just talking about. If you slow down and read through there, you'll see it starts with God, and it kind of moves through society, family, individual. And this is a part of God's good ordering. And the Israelites are to live into that, lean into that, and be an example of how that works itself out in a really beautiful way. Unfortunately, uh, they fail to keep covenant with God. And as a result of this failure to obey, to live differently as, a, as God's people, they lose the land. They get kicked out in a way that's akin to Adam and Eve right in the beginning. 
who forfeited their uh, like relationship and the beauty and wonder of the place that was Eden. Remember, they are exiled from Eden. And in a similar way, the, pe the people of God now, the Israelites, are exiled from the promised land, Canaan. And this is the context in which the book of Daniel uh, occurs. Daniel was written during this time and for this people. And as you might guess, this situation of exile brings all sorts of pressing questions for the Israelites who know the promises to the patriarchs, who know about the promises to Abraham, about them, them being the people of God, them being in this land, uh, God being present in the temple. Uh, they're very well aware of like what should be and what could be. But they're also uh, smacked in the face with what is. And the, dis like, the disconnect between those two things is causing all sorts of confusion for them in this space in exile. And so they're asking things like, will God return to his temple? Will we return to the land? What does hope look like in this present moment when we're subject to the rule of people who do not acknowledge God or care about Yahweh? So there are all these questions that are coming up, and they're in this place where God's rule is not ultimate now, at least not according to their neighbors or according to the kings of the empires within which they live. So there's this threat of pressure always where they're being pressured to conform to a different kind of rule, a different way of ordering their life. So God had that order that we had discussed. This is how you're to live. Now they're in this empire and they're subject to a rule, a way of ordering life that is not like that. And they were always meant to be this distinctive kind of people set apart to be that display. And now all their distinctiveness is being threatened. The way that they eat, uh, the way that they keep time, the things that they do with one another, all those things are under pressure in this empire. Sometimes it's the Babylonians, sometimes it's the Persians. But in each case, it's a different kind of pressure that's threatening, threatening to eliminate their distinctiveness. It's threatening to uh, pressure them into conforming to a different kind of rule other than that of God's rule. And Daniel himself is subject to this very pressure. And perhaps in a most acute way. Because Daniel... His locale in, in the book is always more or less in the royal court. And from the very beginning, Daniel and his friends, uh, who we know most likely as Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace story, the, the first thing that happens to them is they get uh, pulled away into this royal court where they're to learn all the literature and, and uh, the, the wisdom of the Babylonians. So, you see, they're already being formed in a certain kind of way, a way that would be, in many respects, contrary to God's way. So, Daniel's living in the midst of that tension constantly, and perhaps more acutely than anyone else. And Daniel stands, as such, as an example or a representative of the people of Israel at large. So, when you're reading the story of Daniel, you're like thinking about the Israelites who are in a similar circumstance, who are looking on at Daniel, and they're going, okay, I can identify with Daniel because... I'm feeling the pressure too. I'm not in the royal court, but I'm in this Babylonian empire, and they're worshiping things and doing things and asking me not to do things that I feel like I should be doing. And so they're called to learn and be encouraged by Daniel's experience, by his own faithfulness in the book. Now, they are, maybe most importantly, there to begin to see how God is still at work in history and in control of history and how he's going to bring about their rescue and delivery again. 
Because in the darkness and confusion, confusion, excuse me, and the questions of exile, there's the, the most looming one perhaps is, is God still in control? Is this still worth doing? Is he still worth following? Is he still king? And so they're asking these questions and they're pressing in and this little apocalyptic book is going to reveal much about the future, about the people of God themselves, and about God. And all of what's being revealed is meant to equip them so that they might persevere in this new missionary context. They're no longer in the promised land where things are a little bit easier to be distinctive and to be this showcase people who order their, their lives according to the good way of God. Now they're in this foreign context which has all kinds of new pressures and ideas about how to order life. And this book equips them to persevere and it, this context is even sometimes hostile to them. So what does it look like to be faithful to God as his witnesses in an empire that does not acknowledge his rule? This is the book of Daniel. This is how God's people are being addressed, uh, even in Daniel chapter 6. And God is sovereign and bring all of history to its intended purposes and his promised ends, even when all things, especially in exile, look to the contrary, at least to the human perspective. So I'll turn to Daniel 6 now. And I'm going to not read the chapter through and through, but we're going to bounce around and I'll summarize in between. But first, I do want to read Daniel 5. We're going to start with verse 30, just a couple of verses before, just to make a quick note there, and read through 6.4. So in chapter 5, that's the handwriting on the wall. The, the Babylonian king is partying, and he's using the uh, instruments of the temple, doing his thing uh, in arrogance, which tends to always work out badly for the kings in, in Daniel, like Nebuchadnezzar, who arrogantly says he's accomplished everything that he, he has. And if you remember that story, he's forced to crawl around on the ground like an animal, and he's wet with the dew of the earth until he acknowledges that, acknowledges that the Lord God is the only true and mighty king. So this is a, this is a repeat uh, type thing that's occurring, but so he's parting, doing his thing, and then realizes that things are going to go all bad for him. So that very night, Belshazzar, king of Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the, among the administration, among the administrators, excuse me, and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of governmental affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and never corrupt nor negligent. I'll read five as well. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So from the very beginning, uh, I read verse five, the couple of verse, ch verses in chapter five because it shows that Daniel, uh, he remains in his position and his place even when the kingdoms pass. So Daniel has served Nebuchadnezzar in the past for a long time. Then Nebuchadnezzar's son comes on the scene. He doesn't last but very, very much time at all. And now Daniel is serving in the reign of Darius uh, for the Persians. So there's been a whole transition of empires, which all eventually become, come to an end. 
And in every case, uh, Daniel is remaining in this court. He is remaining in his place, which is just one of many examples of God's sovereignty and his control and in history as it unfolds. Like God's caring for his people as they're represented in Daniel. So this is a picture of, of that sovereignty that he's exerting over things and his care for his people. Now, Daniel's service to uh, all the empires has been uh, a fantastic record, to say the least. He's always been super faithful, and that is true also in this instance. And Darius recognizes that, so he wants to promote him uh, to a place of more control, more authority. And his uh, contemporaries, his peers, have a big problem with that. And so they are trying to think of a way they can undermine uh, what David's doing or, or Daniel's doing, some way that they can prove that he shouldn't be deserving of, uh, of this promotion. Um, what's interesting about this is that they can find no fault in him, which I've, I, at least for me, is really striking. So they, or Dan, David, Daniel is capable of doing uh, this service for this pagan empire, for this foreign empire, in a way that in no way compromises his loyalty to God. David is more loyal than any of the other satraps and administrators, which is pretty amazing and confounding and almost in some sense that there's never been a conflict up to this point, that his love of God has always resulted in this faithful love of neighbor, that King Darius looks on and he sees David has cared for my empire and for the citizens of my empire in such a fantastic way and has never been negligent nor corrupt in any manner. Like his love of his God has always translated to a love of neighbor that like one wants you to manage more because you're doing it so faithfully, you're doing it so well. And the only way, and this is again where I wish we could uh, kind of have a marker board, or I, I like marker boards, I like drawing on things, but uh, if you could see that order and structure again, the only way that they're going to trap David or get him in trouble, David, I don't know why I've got David in my brain. David, you're a fr good friend, man. We were shooting some hoops in the pool the other day. Uh, working on our pull jumpers. Uh, so Daniel, the only way that he's going to be trapped is if they undo the ordering, right? So we talked about that ordering, and they say the only way that we can do it is that if we trick him into some conundrum with the law of God. So we've got to flip this to where the human law is going to be above God's law. That's the first thing that they, that they think of, the only thing that they can think of as, as a way of trapping our good, the good servant Daniel. So, pardon me, this wind is a, a challenge. I've got to figure out iPad, I guess, is the, my uh, way to improve the situation. I'm also not technologically uh, savvy either. So they're, they're going to trap him by setting up this conundrum with God's law and the law of the Persians. So they get their group together. They conspire with one another. They go to the king and they say, hey, Let's, let's have this law where for 30 days, people only pray to you. And there's not really an explanation for like why that is or what they might have been appealing to. We don't know if that was like some part of their worship system or if they were just appealing to the, the king's pride or arrogance perhaps or maybe he feels good about like, okay, everyone acknowledging me in such a way that they might pray to me all the time for the next 30 days. What's most important is that they are manipulating uh, the law so that it might come into conflict with God's law itself. So you pray only to the king for the next 30 days. Now, there's 
this important note in the text that once a king issues a decree, this is verse 8 if you want to look at it, so that once it's put into writing, it cannot be altered in accordance with the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So immediately the, the law of humans is put above the law of God, which creates a conflict for Daniel, who goes back home and in his faithfulness to God, prays to God three times a day, just like he always has. He doesn't do anything different. His, public, his life is one of public witness to everyone around him, and there's no shame, there's no change, and he doesn't, but it's also not like he goes uh, to the court and, you know, tells Darius, like, this is, this is a crazy law, like, this shouldn't happen. He just continues in faithfulness to do what he's supposed to do, what he's always done. And in this act, he's uh, showing his commitment and ultimate allegiance to God. So prayer, uh, I think it's Eugene Peterson who is, uh, who's mentioned this, often seen as, like, this simple act that doesn't matter too much. But in this case, prayer is greater than rebellion. So instead of rebelling in an outright way, in an, like a facial front, like a blunt kind of way against the king and against this rule, David's acknowledging a power that is greater than the empire that he lives in by his prayer. That is, he is saying that like there, there is no power which can bend like the way that he's going to order his life, live his life, his devotion to God, because God is ultimately more powerful and his rule is ultimately more important and his Daniel's loyalty is ultimately given to God and God alone. And so they're seeking to trap him there and Daniel's response is one of faithfulness again. His prayer is public and it's also political. It's a statement about God as king. And this, uh, I just want to make a short note about the similarities of Daniel 3 and 6 here and then how confession helps us read the scriptures. This is a I think, fascinating thing uh, that I find encouraging. So we do liturgy every week, right? And we do this uh, same rhythm over and over again. And if you're being shaped by that rhythm, there are little things where, like, in your discipleship and other areas of your life, that rhythm, even the rhythm of confession, will help you. In this case, in this case help you read the scriptures. And Daniel 3, there's a similar story going on where he and his friends are faced with that pressure from the empire again. Nebuchadnezzar's built the big gold shiny statue and says, everyone bow down to it. If you don't bow down to it, I throw you in the fire, fiery furnace. But they don't do that. They get thrown in the fiery furnace. So in the first story, it's like what they're not going to do. Their worship of God, their loyalty to God as king will not be compromised. There are certain things that they will not do. In Daniel 6, their worship of God, their loyalty to God as king, for Daniel, is pictured in something that he will continue to do even if you tell him not to do it. So in our confession, we say that we have sinned against God by what we have done and by what we have left undone. So the confession itself seems to pull in some way from the stories of Scripture, and it helps us to see into Scriptures even more clearly where there, there is always this pressure for us as we live in, in an empire of our own and we face pressures of our own of what we are going to do and what we are not going to do. And sometimes we are not as faithful as Daniel, so we come every week and we publicly confess the ways that we have sinned against God and what we have done and what we have left undone. But I think it's a really beautiful thing that our liturgy helps us read well. And then if we're continuing in the story, I'm going to read Daniel 16, 6, sorry, verse 16 through 18. So the king gave the order, so they've, 
make this accusation. Daniel prays like he normally does, and the result is they're going to have to throw him in the lion's den according to the law, because once the law is written, it can't be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve, continually rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring, with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. The emptiness of the claims of Daniel's accusers is seen in the response of the king, who cannot sleep and cannot eat and has no entertainment, because he knows that Daniel is an innocent man who is just thrown into the lion's den. And now this is also a strange part of the story because as far as we're aware, there's not really uh, evidence of similar types of uh, like discipline, for lack of a better word, for people who don't obey the, the rules of the empire. So this is kind of a new one. It's most akin to something called trial by ordeal, which is when someone is uh, seen to be possibly guilty but not yet proven to be guilty, there's this trial to which they are subject to. So for any of you who have ever watched Monty Python and the Holy Grail, which is, a, yeah, that's a funny reference in connection to Daniel, right? Some of us woke up to that one. But there's a, there's a scene in which they're trying to figure out whether or not the lady is a witch. And how do they do it? They're going to throw her into the water to see if she floats. Because if she floats, then she's the same as a, the, another object of wood or a duck. I can't remember exactly. But it's trial by ordeal. So they're not exactly sure if she's a witch yet or not, so we'll throw her in the water and see what happens. And then on the basis of that, she's guilty or, or innocent. In a similar manner, Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, and we're going to see whether he is guilty or innocent. And, as you might have guessed, Daniel is proven to be innocent. The king comes back to the, to the cave, to the den in the morning, and he's like, hey, Daniel, has your God rescued you? And yes, he shut the mouths of the lions, and I'm safe. I don't have a scratch on me. Uh, Daniel is proven innocent. He is vindicated. This is a super important point for the Israelites as they live in this pressure-filled empi empire where they, they're having to make these tough decisions around, around how they're going to live. Decisions that will often cost them a lot, perhaps even in their lives. Not everyone will be rescued. Not everyone will be thrown into a fiery furnace with the Son of Man to walk around, and they will all walk out with it out being burned. There's a poss real possibility that they could face death in this empire, and that death will meet them in that moment. But there is the reality here that God will always vindicate his people for living his way. That's the point of Daniel's deliverance. That's the point of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being delivered from the fire. That those who live for God will be vindicated, whether it is now or later, God always upholds justice and vindicates his faithful people. So in the response of the king to this deliverance is a beautiful thing. And it's where I kind of want to wrap up the chapter. It's in verses 25 through 28. A part of that vindication, uh, no, I'll skip that. So, 25, the king Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. He said, may you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed, 
His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. 28. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So in these verses, there's a declaration about God that comes as the result of the obedience or the covenant loyalty of Daniel to God in this context of exile. And it's the same outcome that was always intended uh, when God had partnered up with Abraham and by, by and through Abraham with the people of Israel. So God had always meant to be at work in his world, restoring this blessing, and the way that he was going to do it is by choosing this people who would be a light to the nations, a witness to others around them, to their neighbors, of how to live according to God's good rule. And when that happens, there would be a turning to God. And so there's this reality in which the story of Daniel is this uh, on the lips of a king who did not beforehand acknowledge God, does not know God, is not a part of the people of Israel, in response to Daniel's faithfulness, makes a declaration throughout the entire empire about Daniel's God, who saves, who delivers, who's rescue, who, who rescues, who's powerful and mighty, and whose kingdom is above all. So even Darius is forced to recognize that the rule of God is greater than the rule of man that God's law is greater than the law of the Medes and Persians, which trapped, which Darius himself found himself trapped in. For once it's in writing, you can't undo it. He made a poor decision, knows that immediately. Daniel's innocent. He's in anguish all night, but he's trapped by his law. God, not trapped by his law, and his full freedom working for the good of all mankind through the people of Israel. And there's a, a, a bulletin board announcement for, for the whole world all of those who are in this empire of this God who saves and delivers. So how is God addressing us? So if God's addressing the Israelites in this uh, situation or context of exile in this way to be encouraged and to be uh, equipped by the story of Daniel, how then are we being addressed? We find ourselves in the midst of an empire, uh, a very different one than Daniel's situation, but nevertheless an empire, and it has its own unique pressures. And we're being invited to conform to those pressures in, in various kinds of ways. Uh, I wanted to focus on the story of Daniel maybe in a, a little bit of a unique way uh, in talking more about his religious life and political engagement. Uh, Sometimes we avoid the political nature of the Bible, but the Bible tends to be pretty political. And uh, the last few years here have been intensely political, and there have been a lot of pressures in that, in that intense political environment by which uh, the world is seeking to conform us to a different rule. So this is where I feel like the, the story of Daniel can be very helpful for us. For our lives, like Daniel's life, is a public enterprise. All of life is religious. There's no part of your life that is untouched by the basic fundamental undergirding portion, which is who or, or what do you worship? And from that uh, foundation, everything else in the house is built. So if you're worshiping God, then, then the rest of your life is shaped in a certain way. If there is an idol in that place, then everything else is going to be shaped a certain way. 
And, and this sense that our, our lives uh, before our neighbors is not, our religious life before our neighbors is not a private enterprise. So it's not something that we just do in a closet. Daniel prayed with his window open facing Jerusalem, which was just another way of talking about God as king, for God rules from Jerusalem. But all his neighbors could see the way that he was ordering his, his life. They could see uh, that, that one, his public service was shaped by, being shaped by his commitment to God. And this reality begs the question about worship and devotion, to whom are we devoted? Which was the question that was before, or facing the Israelites then and faces us now. To whom are you devoted in Babylonia? To whom are you devoted in Persia? To whom are you devoted in the United States of America? So there's this reality that all of life is religious and that a part of this involves political engagement. That God as king comes into conflict with other claims from, from other people or from idols about their being king in place of God. The second thing I think is political identity. Um, I, I think a good test for us is if we identify too much with a party or with an ideology, then it's usually offensive and we get upset when someone starts critiquing that party or that ideology. That's probably a good signal to us that we've attached ourselves too much to being Republican, Democratic, progressive, liberal, conservative, uh, libertarian, whatever, whatever it is the thing is. But if, if that starts making you angry, if you can't listen to someone critique that, then it might be a good sign that you've bound your identity too much with that political party or ideology or whatever it may be. And so I just want, I want to offer that as a, uh, just as a warning and as a, as a litmus test for us in conversations with others. Where are, are we being upset by that? And if so, we should ask questions about how much we're identifying with those things. I think there's also, there's also a sense in which we're not just Daniel and the Israelites, but we might also be the Babylonians. So that you can read it in two ways. So, or in this case, the Persians, Medes and Persians, sorry, wrong empire. So the satraps who collude with power in order to manipulate the situation to get some cultural clout or influence to make something happen that they want to happen. This is always a temptation even for the church, that they could collude with political power in order to accomplish something that they want to see happen, whether that be in the schools or about prayer, or, and all those things are a good thing, but it's like, are we... Uh, being uh, co-opted for the purposes uh, of someone else by the temptation of gaining some kind of cultural power and influence. Is the carrot being dangled out in front of us and we follow along not knowing what's really being accomplished? There's a, there's a sense in which we might be like the satraps who are tempted to collude with power. There's a, it's often the case that the state likes to work with religion. So this, in, a, in a place where the empire or the state claims a lot of authority on your life, it's going to try to prop up that authority and make you feel like that has a real substantial claim. And one of the ways that it does that is to attach itself to religion. So it acknowledges God not for the sake of God, but for the sake of its uh, institutional power. Does that make sense where it's like, okay, I'm yes, uh, we acknowledge that uh, God is important or that God is... Uh, real or whatever the case may be, but we do that for the sake of propping up our, our power and the allegiance that we're trying to pull from you. It looks like we're pro-God, 
but we're only pro-God insofar as we can subject you to the kind of uh, way of life that we want you to live. So this would be another way of, uh, I think, for us, how God might be addressing us in the story of Daniel. The third is identifying the pressures. So in some ways, I feel like Daniel's stories are, are obvious ones. They're like very clear. Uh, bow down to the statue or don't pray. They usually don't come in those forms for us. So we have to do a little more work around identifying those pressures. But we are a people that are called to resist those pressures within the culture. And then we're also called to confess and repent when, like Israel, we fail to comply with our God-given vocation to be faithful witnesses. So I'd love for you guys to turn and chat with one another about some of those pressures that you see in our empire, in our state. Uh, where, where are we pressured to conform to a rule other than, than the good rule of God or, or an order that is not like the good order of God? So if you will, turn to your neighbor, chat for a few minutes about that. I'd love to hear what some of those pressures are that you've experienced. All right. Uh, unfortunately, I have um, flown through my uh, time allotment, so I cannot hear from you. But uh, hopefully the conversations were well. As a closing point, just to acknowledge that we, uh, in our context, are both citizens of the USA and citizens of heaven. So the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says that our citizenship is in heaven. And this is an acknowledgement of the, the kind of way that we are to live in this world. Uh, our citizenship is, is in both places, but in, in, a, in a real sense, we are called to enact the good rule of God in the current context. In anticipation of the fact that God's good rule will uh, eventually one day be finally and fully realized when Jesus returns that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and everything will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And until that time, as his people, we are to bear witness to that future reality, to that future hope, by enacting his good rule now. You and I are called to live a different kind of way, even amidst all the pressure, to encourage one another to not conform, but to stand, stand fast, stand upright in the midst of an empire with its swirling current, that always threatens to, to take us far away from what God has intended. So I pray that as, as God's people, we might uh, be his faithful witnesses in this place, citizens of the U.S. and citizens of heaven. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for an opportunity together as your people to worship you, uh, to hear from your word, to sing together, um, to be reminded of uh, our vocation uh, our calling as your people uh, to be a light to the nations in a manner very akin to that of Israel. And we are called uh, to conform to your good rule that you are king and that we are your servants um, who delight in your will and walk in your ways. Would you give us grace to do so? Help us to confess and repent when we fail uh, that we might be uh, happy recipients, recipients of the forgiveness of Christ and happy recipients of the power of the Spirit to be made new, to be made whole. I pray all this in the precious name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.